0: The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. In case you're visiting with us, we're in the middle of a uh, a series called Every Oar in the Water, in which we discover that each of us has a gift uh, to use. And the theme for the series, though we're looking at the book of Jonah, is uh, rowing, uh, the crew. And uh, those of you who were uh, with us uh, for opening day... I uh, noticed uh, a wonderful event. I happened to be on the Montlake Bridge with my daughter. And as the crews were returning back up to the docks, uh, one road underneath that had something you know that caught my daughter's uh, interest, there was a, a missing person. There were eight people in the boat plus a coxswain. Okay, nine people. Uh, but one of the seats right in the middle of the boat uh, was empty. Uh, probably someone had gotten sick or had to be pulled out of the uh, at the end of the race for some reason. But... That space in the middle of the boat we call uh, the engine room. Uh, the engine room is the place, the four seats that are in the middle, especially the, the sternmost two uh, seats, five and six we call them, uh, where you want to put the biggest, strongest uh, oars people. I always rode in the, uh, in, the, in the front or the back of the boat where they put the best, the skinniest, best-looking people, but in... <laughs> In the middle of the boat, you want your hogs who can really pull on that oar. That's because that's the widest part of the boat. It's the deepest uh, part of the boat. It's the most stable part of the boat. That is the source of strength for the boat. If you got it in the engine room, uh, the boat is moving forward. So to see a boat row under the bridge with an empty seat reminded me that sometimes you and I lack uh, the motivation Uh, Sometimes we lack the engine uh, for the life that God calls us uh, to live. One of my favorite storybooks as a child is this little thing called Pierre, a cautionary tale in five chapters and a prologue. And I want to read to you from this book. Uh, The prologue is in in its entirety this. Uh, There once was a boy named Pierre who only would say, I don't care. Read his story, my friend, for you'll find at the end that a suitable moral lies there. Chapter one. One day his mother said when Pierre climbed out of bed, Good morning, darling boy. You are my only joy. Pierre said, I don't care. What would you like to eat? I don't care. Some lovely cream of wheat? I don't care. Don't sit backwards in your chair? I don't care. Or pour syrup on your hair? I don't care. You're acting like a clown? I don't care. You get the idea. It keeps on going on and on. Chapter 2 is his dad's attempt. He doesn't have uh, any better luck with uh, Pierre. Chapter 3, a lion enters the scene. Left unattended, He now is interviewed by this lion. Now, as the night began to fall, a hungry lion paid a call. He looked Pierre right in the eye and asked him if he'd like to die. Pierre said, I don't care. I can eat you, don't you see? I don't care. The interview continues, but at the end, so the lion ate Pierre. (laughs) His parents will come back and not find Pierre in chapter 4. His mother asked, where is Pierre? The lion answered, I don't care. His father said, Pierre's in there. (laughs) And then the final chapter, chapter 5, in which we find this cautionary moral is as follows. His father asked, are you all right? Uh, Pierre's dropped out on the floor. Uh, Pierre said, I am feeling fine. Please take me home. It's half past nine. The lion said, if you would care to climb on me, I'll take you there. Then everyone looked at Pierre who shouted, Yes, indeed, I care. The lion took them home to rest and stayed on as a weekend guest. The moral of Pierre is care. (laughs) The problem of motivation, of caring, is not only the problem of little children who sometimes don't know what's best for them. No, in fact, it proves to be the problem, the challenge of us, even as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Think of not Pierre, but Peter. Uh, That energizer, a disciple, who on the night that Jesus was betrayed, pledged to Jesus. His motivation would not flag. And yet Jesus looks at Peter and says, you know, Simon, Simon, I have prayed for you. I have prayed that your faith might be strengthened. And he says, um, Satan has requested that you be sifted like wheat. Once you have turned back, though, Peter, strengthen your brothers. So you see that there's this invitation to faith, and Jesus says, I'm praying for, for Peter. And then there's an engagement of gifts, that strengthening of your brother's, Peter's pastoral gift. But in between, Peter's motivation w- will fail, and he will have to turn back. In the same way, in the book of Jonah, we see, as we've been reading through, that chapter 1, God has an invitation uh, to Jonah. Arise and go, he says. And uh, it didn't go so well. Jonah kind of looks the other way. Chapter 3, there's a reset, and the uh, chapter begins again with those same words, arise and go. And this time, uh, Peter's ready to go. He's ready to engage his gifts. So what is it that comes between invitation and engagement that gives Jonah the motivation uh, to serve? Well, that's what we're looking at today. Let's uh read together this text. Would you pull out your Bible or the Pew Bible and open up to Jonah chapter one, verse seventeen? We're going to look at chapter two, but we'll begin with verse seventeen of the prior chapter. You'll find this on page seven hundred and fifty two in the Pew Bible. And let's stand and read this together out loud. Jonah uh, chapter one, verse seventeen down through the end of the chapter, chapter two and uh, when you're done reading. It, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's word. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving... Will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Well, what happens between chapter one and chapter three is pure thanksgiving, and in that we find the answer to our question: What is the motivation for life? It is gratitude. Gratitude is that which speeds the boat of life forward upon the seas. Cicero said that gratitude is the, not only the greatest of virtues, but the parents of all the parents of all other uh, virtues. And this, we find a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of gratitude, a song, poetry. We notice immediately that the form changes from narrative to singing, and that rather than third person, it changes to first and and second person. Uh, That is, we're not talking about somebody anymore, Jonah. But we find ourselves using Jonah's words, talking to our God and saying, Thank you, thank you uh, for what you have done. In my life. And here's the point today we find life's most powerful motivation when we hit bottom and meet there our deliverer. When we hit bottom and meet our deliverer. But how do you draw gratitude in your heart? Uh, Is it something you can just fabricate? No, it's not. Um, although I, I did do a little uh, research for you. I scanned the web and I found something that may be helpful to you called how to act surprised by a gift you don't like. And um, I think this may be helpful to some of you mothers a little bit later on in the day. I'm not sure. So just want to throw this in. There are four steps. First of all, open the whole thing straight away. Widen your eyes when you see what it is. Step one. Okay. Step two, vocalize your surprise. Now you can say things like, Wow. And gasp, but in bold here. Be careful not to overdo this, though. Okay? They might suspect. Okay, number three, smile, smile. Make your smile as believable as possible. Think of something you're looking forward to, or someone who makes your smile. You smile. Okay. Make sure your eyes are smiling too. And then finally, say thank you, and mean it. Okay? Now, I, if you're like me, you might hope for something a little bit more authentic uh, than a prescription like that. Just be glad. Just be grateful. And, and Jonah opens the door to insight as to how it is that we can find deep gratitude in life. There are two dynamics. Two dynamics that are as critical uh, for our experience of gratitude as they are for rowing, actually. Uh, balance and rhythm. Let's look at those by uh, turns. First of all, balance. Throughout the book of Jonah, there's this downward momentum that culminates at verse 6b when Jonah hits bottom. You may know that experience of going down, 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 and Jonah knows it and then he feels at the bottom. And at the same time, once he meets his deliverer at the bottom, he is going to find that he is taken right up to the surface. He is now arising. He's moving upward. In in this sense, this picture of deliverance is a, uh, a preview of one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2. Do you notice that? That the Son of God who's in heaven with God, Jesus Christ, uh, takes on human form. He descends down into the depths of, of judgment, our judgment, the indignity of being a slave, dying on a cross. But then, having done so, He conquers death. He breaks its bounds and rises again up into heaven. And that is a picture of cosmic celebration, Thanksgiving. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord with grateful hearts. And so Jonah here gives us a very individual and personal view of that same dynamic of dropping down in judgment and rising in salvation. That's our journey. We need to have both of those. We need to keep them in balance. Just as you have to have oars on both sides of the boat, we need to keep in tension the the downdraft of God's judgment against sin with the upcurrent of His grace in our salvation in Jesus Christ. To miss this is to move not into gratitude, but into despair. That's the downward imbalance, moving into despair. To think I serve an angry God who is constantly calling me to nothing more than duty to make my life miserable and punish me in some way. This the Israelites thought in the middle of redemption as they come through the Red Sea and there they are saying, I bet God has, is judging us just like He judged the Egyptians and now He's brought us into the wilderness to kill us. Deuteronomy 1.27. They've misunderstood the heart of God. Or think of the, uh, the steward who buries his talent in the ground because he says when Jesus, when the master comes back, I, I was so afraid of you because I know that you're a harsh man. Misperceiving uh, uh, God's upward uh, current. He invests himself in this downward judgment. and can only see the punishment of God. This is the, this is the uh, struggle that Luther uh, uh, experienced before he read the book of Romans. In 1520, this pugnacious little uh, monk uh, left his native Germany on pilgrimage to Rome. And he came to the Scala Santa, It's a staircase with 28 steps, and pilgrims would come. It was thought to have been the actual staircase that Jesus climbed when Pilate called him forth to pronounce judgment upon him. And here these pilgrims, Luther among them, would crawl up these 28 steps, crying out for mercy, knowing their wickedness, one step after another. And it drove Luther to distraction and anxiety to live with such a vengeful God, an angry God in his mind. He misunderstands. He's got a downward imbalance. Not until he reads the book of Romans would he discover, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That's the upward current of God's grace. The creed says, On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits on the right hand of God with us in his belly. That's a downward imbalance. On the other hand, uh, we could have an upward imbalance. If a downward imbalance leads to despair, an upward imbalance leads to pride. Which is to say, I get God's salvation, but frankly, I really don't think I need much saving. I really feel pretty good about myself. Uh, That will not lead to gratitude either. We need to be careful. It's interesting, a study that was published at Oxford Press called Soul Searching. You know, there are 33 million teenagers in America, and 85% of them say they believe in God. But the kind of creed that they profess, these two researchers from UNC and Notre Dame uh, uh, discovered, is what they call moral therapeutic deism. Moral, God generally does care about right and wrong. People who do well go to heaven. Therapeutic, the purpose of God in my life is to help me feel better. And deism, he's there, but he's there from a distance, and you only call upon him when you're in trouble. That's the creed of our youth, whether they're Christians, Jews, or this cuts across uh, religious uh, communities. Very dangerous not to understand the doctrines, the great doctrines, uh, the teaching of Jesus Christ. We call them uh, justification that God in Jesus Christ has punished sin because we are truly sinners. But having completed that punishment, that judgment in the Son of God, we are utterly free in Christ to live without any fear of condemnation. To only catch the upward side, to be a moral, therapeutic deist, is to say with a French free thinker, Oh, God will forgive. That's his job. Or to say with the nine lepers, yeah, I'm healed, but you know, this guy's healing people all the time. That's just what he does. And to keep on walking. And only one who turns around to say, wow, I realize the cost of my salvation. Thank you. Or there's a man named Simon who's got an upward imbalance. He invites Jesus over for a meal. And when a a sinner in the city, a woman of ill repute, comes into the room, Simon says to himself, if that man knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her touch her. But what Simon has forgotten is what kind of a man he is and the amount of grace it takes to bring him into God's salvation as well. And because he has forgotten that, Jesus will say to him, those who have been forgiven much love much. See, if you want much love in your life, you've got to appreciate how much you have been forgiven. You've got to hold the downdraft of judgment together with the upflow of God's salvation, just as Jonah does in this song. We not only need balance, but we also need rhythm. Rhythm is that uh, sequence, one after another, in rowing of an oar blade being put into the water at the beginning of the stroke and completed and then returned again to be put in the water again for another stroke. And you see, gratitude is a perishable commodity. It's like lettuce, uh, not like gold. It it, it needs to be refreshed in our experience again and again and again. And so Jonah, he gives a hint at this at the end when he says, "I, I have a sacrifice that I'm going to bring into the temple, the particular kind of sacrifice is a vow. It's a vow offering. He has cried out to God, God has heard his prayer, and he's filled with gratitude, and he wants to come and give to God generously as a response to that salvation. Now, you you could give that gift to the temple all at once, but you could also pay that over time on an installment plan. And it's not necessarily because you couldn't afford to give it but you wanted to give so much that you were going to give again and again and again. You'll go back and recall what a great deliverance God did in your life when you hit the bottom. The other indication of this is just that this is a song. And i got to believe that Jonah has this song because here because he sings it over and over and over again. He celebrates the story in his own life of that day when... He was going down, down. It's horrific imagery. Think of the uh, ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Uh, We find this in the Old Testament. And by the way, uh, God doesn't endorse this cosmology in the Bible. It's the cosmology of the people into whose lives he speaks. This is the way they imagine the world. Start with the horizon. It's a flat earth. And above the earth, there is a blue thing that holds back waters. The waters above, they're called in Genesis chapter 1. And this, this is a logical, even if to their minds, perhaps a scientific uh, inference because water drips down from time to time and, um, and uh, nourishes our crops, uh, does it not? And So they thought that God in creation had to take the expanse and he separated the waters above from the waters below and put this great firmament there to hold back those waters. And likewise, underneath the horizon or underneath dry land, there is water below that uh, we see bubbling up in springs or moving through streams or the oceans on which the dry land floats. The, uh, the, The waters above are held by these great columns we call mountains. The mountains hold up that firmament. The mountains, though, go down deep. And the roots of the mountains, as we see in this psalm, go down through the waters below to the depths of the sea and even into this place called Sheol. It's a dark, shadowy place. Outside of the Bible, ancient literature tells us that it took three days and three nights to journey to Sheol, the place of death, Sheol, Hades, the pit, the grave, all interchangeable terms. And Jonah, as he goes down, it's a horrifying description, very graphic, draws us right into the depths of God's judgment. He says, you have cast me into the deep. You have sent me down, and as I went, the waters closed over me. The weeds wrap around my face, and I find myself in the fortress of Sheol with its bars closing. I'm utterly incapable. I deserve what I get, and here I am. But then, unaccountably, there's this great fish. And, you know, scholars from time to time have tried to figure out, well, how is it possible that someone could live three days in a fish? And there are all these Mariner stories that are adduced. But, you know, to me, that misses the whole point. The whole point of this isn't that you could somehow understand how this happens. The whole point of this is that we have no idea how a God could be so great to deliver a sinner just when he hits bottom in this way. So we remember that. We sing this song and we are drawn into the mystery of our own redemption. Willa Cather wrote a novel called uh, Death Comes for the Archbishop. Beautiful story about uh, two priests who are friendly with one another in the, in the uh, Southwest. And uh, Bishop Latour, the elder gentleman, has kind of fallen on a season of spiritual malaise. His heart feels cold towards the things of God. He feels... Somehow distant and hardened. One night he lies in bed, it's a December evening, and the snow is falling, and he hears the footsteps of a poor servant woman outside. She's gone to the door of the chapel. Her masters are Protestants, and they forbid her to come and celebrate the Mass. So, under the cover of the dark of night, Latour puts on his uh, garments and goes out barefoot through the snow and opens the door of the chapel and kneels beside this woman as she, for the first time in months, gets to taste the grace of God. Bishop Latour says, Never, as he afterward told Father Viant, his comrade, had it been permitted him to behold such deep experience of the holy joy of religion as on that pale December night, He was able to feel, kneeling beside her, the preciousness of the things of the altar to her, who was without possessions, the tapers, the image of the virgin, the figures of the saints, the cross that took away indignity from suffering and made pain and poverty a means of fellowship with Christ. Kneeling beside that much enduring bond woman, he experienced those holy mysteries as he had done in his young manhood. When we revisit our story, likewise, streams of gratitude can flow down our cheeks. Rhythm. We need it as well as we need balance. We need to return again and again to the story of God's grace at work in our lives. Every subsequent crisis we face, we will hit the bottom again and again and again, but never will we hit the bottom uh, that is below all bottoms, the tomb of Jesus Christ. And so we know that in every one of our bottoms, there is always a deliverer who cares for us and will bring us up to the heights of God's love. The engine room for the followers of Jesus is gratitude. It's that simple. This is what is to motivate all of our actions, hitting bottom and finding our deliverer there. We balance the depth of our need with the height of his rescue, and we recall the improbable story in our hearts Again and again. Well, check your balance. Here's a little quiz. When I do something wrong, I am most likely, A, to feel really bad about it and promise God I'll never do it again. Or, uh, B, forget about it because God always forgives. See, one is a downward imbalance. Thinking that God calls for me duty and more obligation. The other is an upward imbalance. Not giving right account the cost of our sin and our Savior's sacrifice. Or C, do you confess, yes, that was wrong, an offense to your glory, but thank you that I am forgiven through the death and the life of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Check your balance. Secondly, check your rhythm. How often do I celebrate the story of my deliverance? We're celebrating it here today over the waters of baptism. How often? Do you have opportunities even between worship services during the week to reflect on God's great uh, deliverance in your own life? Do you have devotions in which you confess sin and give thanksgiving for redemption? Perhaps you'd like to read this text each morning aloud before you go to work this week. Do you memorize scripture or listen to Christian music, the hymns, the lyrics of which recall for you your own redemption? Or do you share your story with others or let them share their story with you, kneeling beside them and wondering the marvel of God's grace? Nineveh has no idea what they've got coming. It's not a saint. It's not a sinner. It's a delivered rebel who is ready now and eager to engage His gifts. It's an engagement that will bring uh, the enemies of Israel to their knees at least for a day in worship. Jonah is ready to put his oar in the water. Are you? Let's pray. God, we are like Jonah. We have no way in which we can impress you. But we are deeply impressed. By what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. That you have come to enter right into the brokenness of our life. You have come when we were in the belly of death. Alienated from you. The very bowels of hell itself. Yet you came. The third day. From the third day you rose again. From that tomb. To carry us with you from that from that death unto the life that lasts forever. Help us to get better perception of that reality in our lives. Help us to wonder again and again at it and to find the fuel of thanksgiving that allows us to engage our gifts courageously, fully, and lovingly in the lives of those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.